you have your Bibles with you tonight, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter number 18. I'm going to start at verse 1 and 2, then we'll drop down to verse 9. Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll drop down to verse 9. The Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. When he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. Verse number nine. They said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah, thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. And it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old... Shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we bow before you tonight, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for the joy of the Lord, as Nehemiah reminded us, is our strength. And we thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you for the privilege and opportunity you've given to us to share your word with this precious congregation. I look to you tonight for your divine assistance. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me as you speak to us. May you be glorified for all that's accomplished. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Interesting time in the life of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham is 99 years old at this time, and Sarah is 89 years old. And we see that the Lord dispatches three angels to come and pay them a visit. And uh, I don't know if these angels had any other job other than what they're doing, but if if this was their only job, I don't want those three angels paying me a visit tonight, okay? They're They're going to let Abraham and Sarah know that they're going to have a baby. God has blessed my wife and I with two boys, and... Their oldest one is 45. The youngest one will be 44 next month. And I wouldn't take a million dollars for them, but at this point in my life, I wouldn't give a nickel for another one. I just thank God for the grandbabies. Okay, and so, but anyway, we see that the angel of the Lord is gonna let them know that they're going to become parents. Let's kind of catch you up to speed in the previous chapter. And I don't know how much time has gone by between chapter 17 and chapter 18. But in chapter 17, Abraham and the Lord have also gone through this covenant uh, ritual. 
He's placed a bullock, placed a sacrifice there and walked between them. And, and during that time, we see that the Lord wants to seal the deal here with, with this covenant, with the act of circumcision. And Abraham probably thinking, say, what? Why, why we need to do that? Why is that necessary? But you gotta keep in mind that uh, part of this covenant is a reminder that they're God's promise to him that your offspring are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. And at the age of 99, they hadn't had the first youngin' yet. So they're thinking not only has Sarah's biological clock slowed down, it has stopped ticking, okay? In verse number 11, the King James Version says, it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. That means she's well beyond the hot flash stage, okay? There's no hormone replacement therapy. There's no fertility drugs. There's no pharmaceutical aids that's going to help this come about. She knows. I don't know which was the greater miracle. The fact that she's going to conceive in her old age or that twice she admits she's an old woman. Some of you get that on the way home. And so the amazing part is long before Arnold Schwarzenegger said it in the Terminator, the angel says to them, I'll be back. You can mark it on your calendar. You can put it in your day planner. The scripture says in verse 10 and verse 14, according to the time of life. In other words, at nine months from now, mark it down, I'm coming back. And when I come back, you're going to have a baby. And not only are you gonna have a baby, it's going to be a boy. That's pretty amazing. They didn't have ultrasound back then. It's going to be a boy. You know, the moment the angel said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? The moment she hears her name mentioned, she's got her ear glued to the tent flap, okay? She's listening. You say, Brother George, you don't know that she was listening in. Yes, I do. How else did she know to laugh at what he said? She's listening to this conversation and she's laughing. She knows this is not biologically possible. This is not physiologically possible. You say, but brother George, in the book of Genesis, they lived to be long. So maybe at 89 and 99, maybe they were relatively young in, in all terms of that. Watch my head. Mm -mm. Now the sad reality of it is, when you go back to chapter five, the average lifespan was about 900. Our family did not get that gene pool. The average lifespan was 900, but already the effects of the sin curse had wreaked havoc on mankind to where the life expectancy. Now, you remember the lie that Satan told Eve, you'll not die. Well, in Genesis 5.30, it said, and all the days that Adam lived were 930 and he died. He may not have died immediately when they took of the fruit, but not only had they died spiritually, but they eventually died. And so as we look at this passage of scripture, the angel comes and says to them, you're going to have this baby. Abraham's 99, 
and Sarah is 89. And the angel gives this rhetorical question. It's verse number 14. And I want to call your attention to this rhetorical question. As Sarah is laughing at the thought of her being able to conceive a child in her old age, the angel just simply said this, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, I, I'm curious. If I were to go around the sanctuary row by row and ask you, is anything too hard for the Lord? 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 I think most of you, if not all of you, would say, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. But I think there may be three reasons why we would say that. Some of you would say that because you really believe that there's nothing too hard for the Lord. Some of you would say that because you assume it's the answer I'm looking for. Some of you would say that because the person sitting next to you was going to say it and you're going to cave into peer pressure. You don't want to be the odd person out. But it's my sincere prayer that there would not be anybody that would leave the sanctuary tonight without being able to say that with a certainty in your heart that you believe that there's nothing too hard for the Lord. Because I'm afraid that if I were to get some of you aside by yourself away from here and ask you that, you might say, Brother George, I want to believe that. I'd like to believe that. I hope to believe that. But I'm really struggling with that. And I want us to look not only how this plays out in the life of Abraham and Sarah, but also how it plays out in our lives and even as a, as a habit or as a consistency down throughout Scripture. And one of the first things when we consider, is anything too hard for the Lord? I want you to understand this. There is no promise too hard for the Lord to fulfill. Amen? Someone has asked me, Brother George, how many promises are there in the word of God? I don't know. I've heard so many different answers from several hundred to a few thousand. But I know this, whatever that correct number is, God intends to fulfill. He wants to fulfill every one of them. But I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but sometimes we abuse and misuse the promises of God because we cannot, we must not treat them all alike because some of the promises of God are personal and specific. Going back to Genesis chapter 12, when the Lord told Abraham at the age of 75, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show you. I will make of thee a great nation and bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That was not a promise that anybody in this room can claim. God did not promise that all the families of the earth would be blessed through you, but through Abraham. 
There are personal and specific promises that were intended for individuals that sometimes we may not have a right to claim. There are some of them that are also general and universal, which means not only could Abraham claim it, but we can too. Thank God for that. In Philippians chapter four, verse 19, during COVID, I discovered this one very well. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Thank God for that. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse five, let your conversation be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he had said, I will never leave thee nor forsake you. That's a general universal promise that he gives to us. I'm also know that there are promises there that have a condition attached to them. And because God is just and holy and righteous, he is obligated not to fulfill a promise that has a condition attached to it until the conditions have been met. The verse of scripture that many times we hear in relation to revival, Second Chronicles chapter seven, verse 14, if, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Do you see the condition? If you do this, then I will do this. You know why America is not experiencing revival? Because we haven't met the condition of revival. Would you agree with me that there was enough blood shed on Calvary's cross to save the whole world? Watch my head, this is the right answer. Yes, would you agree with me the whole world is not saved? No, why? Because they haven't met the condition. First John chapter one, verse nine. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If the positive is true, the negative also is, which means if we don't confess, he will not forgive. And so we gotta be careful about treating all the promises of God just alike because we can't do that. It may be a personal specific promise and we need to see if that was just given to that individual or is it a general universal promise that every child of God could claim, amen? We have a promise. We have a promise in Romans chapter eight, verses 35 to 39, that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Thank God for that promise. Amen. I'm reminded of a promise that the Lord gave in Acts chapter one and verse number 11, Jesus ascend, ascending up into heaven and the disciples are watching him kind of like a child would watch a balloon that just slipped through their fingers. And they're looking at this saying, whoa, dude, that's pretty amazing. And they're watching as long as they can see him. And unbeknownst to them, there was a couple of angels standing by them. And here's what they said, you men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you see him go up into heaven. In other words, he promised not only would he go away, but he's promising he's coming back. Thank God for that promise. He's trying to comfort the disciples in the upper room at the last supper in John chapter 14. And he sees this troubled look on their face. And he says to them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. 
God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Listen to me. He's made that promise. And he's going to keep that. And as soon as the Father says to the Son, go get my children, all the imps of hell will not be able to stop that from happening. Amen. There is no promise too hard for him to fulfill. I've reminded what Paul told the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 20. He said, for all the promises of God in him, of speaking of Jesus, all the promises of God in him are yea and in him, amen. In other words, you can take that to the bank. That's more secure than the bank is. And then Paul gives us some idea of how Abraham was clinging to the promise of God. In Romans chapter four, verses 20 and 21, here's what Paul said of Abraham. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And so I'm glad tonight that whatever promise we're clinging to, thank God we have a God that is able to perform that promise. I'm clinging, I'm holding to the promises of God tonight. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Praise the Lord. There is no promise too hard for the Lord to fulfill. But there's something else some of us need to get a hold of tonight, and that's this. There's no problem too hard for the Lord to solve. Anybody here ever had any problems? Some of you saying, been there, done that, writing a book on that one, Brother George. Life is filled with problems. God's people are not exempt from problems. And then you say, well, what difference does it make if I serve God if I'm going to have problems like people out in the world have? I'll tell you what makes a difference. When you face the problems, you don't have to put a gun to your head. You have a hope. When you face the problems, you don't have to go look for a bottle of alcohol or a shrimp to put your brain in some kind of stupor. We have a hope. We have one we can go to. We can claim the blood. Thank God we have a hope the world does not have. God's word is filled with people of faith that still had problems. But I want to go where there's some in a nutshell. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Luke, chapter 8 and chapter 9. In the book of Luke, chapter 8 and chapter 9, Jesus has called the disciples and they've been going about doing ministry. And because of the miracles Jesus has been doing, the crowd is just immense. And Jesus not only himself is getting weary, but he can tell the disciples are getting weary. So he brings up a good idea. He says, fellas, what do you say we get on a boat and get away from the crowd and go across the, the lake here? They're all for that. I'm verse 22. So in Luke chapter eight, verse 22, Jesus is in the lower part of the ship taking a nap. And while he's taking a nap, a storm comes up. And it is a storm that is so bad, the disciples are afraid for their life. They're afraid the ship is going down. And I got news for them. They needed to understand this, and maybe you need to understand this. You can't sink a ship that's got Jesus on board. Amen. 
And if the ship goes down, by the way, then the safest place is in the water where he's at. Amen. Peter discovered that when he found out you could walk on the water to get to Jesus. Didn't need a boat. But in verse 22, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. The disciples wake up Jesus and they said, Jesus, we got a problem. What's the problem? The fact that we're in a boat, we prefer the water be on the outside, but the water's also on the inside. The fact that we're in a boat, we prefer to be vertical and we're pretty much horizontal. This is not a good thing in a boat. And so Jesus gets out on the deck, out on the bow of the ship, and he looks at the wind and the waves. He says, wind, calm down. Waves, settle down. And the wind and the waves obeyed him. And Jesus could look at them and say, no problem. No problem. And they get safely on the other side. The disciples are probably ready to kiss the ground. Thank God we're off the boat. But in verse 26, they're met by a welcoming committee that greets them. The only problem is that welcoming committee is a committee of one. And the one person that meets them is a naked lunatic that's demon-possessed. And he, he has, they've tried to chain him. He breaks the chains. They clothe him and he rips his clothes off. And so he's living among the cemetery as a naked man, demon possessed. And the disciples come to Jesus and said, Jesus, we got a problem. Well, what's the problem? <laughs> this naked demon possessed man. Jesus asked what his name is. He said, we're legion, representing how many demons were in that man. And he cast the demons out. And the next thing we see, this man was seated and clothed. There's something about meeting Jesus that'll make a person modest. He was seated and clothed and in his right mind. Jesus could look at the disciples, no problem. As a result of what's been happening, not only did the crowd not get smaller, but the crowd has gotten larger. I'm at verse 40 now. In verse number 40, the crowd is pressing in against them. They haven't gotten that day off yet that they've been longing for. And in verse number 40, there is a ruler of the synagogue approaches Jesus. His name is Jairus. And Jairus says, I got a 12 year old little girl that is sick. I got a problem. My little girl is sick. I need you to come to my house. So Jesus starts to go toward Jairus' house. But you're not going to believe this, but somebody else in that crowd had a problem. And in verse 43, there was a woman there who'd had an issue of blood for the last 12 years. She's been hemorrhaging. And according to the Levitical law, she's considered unclean. Who she touches and what she touches is considered unclean. She has been a social outcast and reject for the last 12 years. And she's tried everything within her means and everything within her power to do something about it, only to realize she's only gotten worse in the course of the thing and she realized if I could just touch the hem of his garment and she presses through the crowd she kind of throws caution to the wind she doesn't care what the Levitical law says she doesn't care how many other people she touches pressing through the crowd she's got to get to Jesus and she touches the hem of his garment 
And Jesus said, who touched me? And the disciples are thinking, well, that narrows it down to about a few thousand. Oh, no, this one was different. I felt virtue leave from me. This woman had a problem, but Jesus touched it immediately. 12-year-old problem, Jesus touched it. Now, I want you to go back now to Jairus. You know... You know that Jairus is wanting Jesus to hurry up and get to his house. Have you ever noticed when we got a problem, ain't nobody got a problem like ours? And when we bring it to Jesus, we want him to do something about it like right now. How many besides me, when we pray about something, the moment we say amen, we're hoping the answer comes like right then. Have you ever discovered it don't always come right then? And Jairus is probably got his arms crossed, tapping his foot, like, would you hurry up and come? Come to my house. And Jesus starts heading that way. But what, while Jesus is dealing with this woman with the issue of blood, it's kind of like he's hit the pause button on Jairus. Have you ever had Jesus to hit the pause button on you? It doesn't mean he's not going to do it. It doesn't mean he can't do it. It doesn't mean he won't do it. But sometimes if we'll just be patient with his process, we'll discover something greater about him than we even imagined to start with. Amen. Jairus came to Jesus because he believed Jesus could touch a sick girl. But Jairus is going to learn not only can Jesus touch a sick girl, he can raise a dead girl. And so they go there and Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and they go to Jairus' house. And they go go where the little girl, the neighbors have already come to grieve and mourn the death of this little girl. And so he takes mom and dad and Peter, James, and John in the room. It's very obvious her lifeless body is there. And as they're all looking at the lifeless body, Jesus said, she's just asleep. They laugh him to scorn. Not just mom and dad, but Peter, James, and John. And he has to put the five of them out of the room. And he looks at that little girl and says, Maid, arise. And breath comes back into that little girl. And he brings her out to mom and dad and says, Get this girl a happy meal. Now the King James Version says, Get her some meat. But I said it's a happy meal. You say there wasn't McDonald's in? No, there wasn't. But it was the happiest meal that family had that day. And Jesus could look at them and say, see, no problem. Amen. Well, go with me to chapter 9, verse 10 now. They still haven't gotten that day off. And the crowd's getting even larger. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 9... Jesus has empowered the disciples in verse one. He called them together, gave them power and authority over all devils and healed diseases. But we also find out it's during this time that he's preaching and teaching to the multitude. And the disciples come to Jesus. They said, Jesus, we got a problem. Well, what's the problem? This crowd is famished. They're hungry. Dominoes don't deliver out here. We can't order Chinese takeout and we don't have enough money to go to Walmart to get any groceries. What are we gonna do? Jesus said, well, what have you got? We found one little boy that brought a sack lunch of five loaves and two fishes. Okay, 
Have them sit down in companies of 50 and 100. And Jesus takes that sack lunch. And in my sanctified imagination, I want you to envision this. Jesus gets on the intercom of glory. He says, Father, I'd like to place an order, please. Yes, son, what would you like? I'd like to order 5,000 filet of fish value meals. Son, would you like me to supersize that one? Oh yeah, dad, supersize that one, would you? And every one of that crowd eats their fill of fish sandwiches and they take up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. No problem. Now listen to me. I may have taken a little bit of preacher liberty in sharing some of these stories, but these were real stories. These were not parables. These were not just uh, fictitious examples. They were real people with real problems, real stories, and Jesus was able to meet those needs. And I want you to know he is able to meet your need tonight. Is anything too hard for the Lord? There is no promise too hard for him to fulfill there is no problem too hard for him to solve the only ones he can't solve are the ones we won't give him bring it to Jesus I'm sure Brian and Cal will understand what I'm saying here this next thing is encouraging to me because going out in revivals week after week there's a lot of people try to tell us the days of revival are over Well, they're not. Because the need of revival is as great as it's ever been. And the God of revival is as alive as he's ever been. Amen. But I will will make this confession. There have been some places I've gone, not the ones you're thinking of, but other ones. There have been some places I've gone that I wondered, I don't know if we could have revival here or not. You folks are blessed to have what you have here. This... It ain't like this everywhere you go. And I know you may find this hard to believe, but there's a few dead churches out there. And, and I've been in some of them and I thought, I don't know if we could have revival or not. But I read in scripture and I discover that there were some unlikely, if not impossible situations to where they experienced revival. And I thought if they could have her, I mean, if you would have asked the first century church, where would be the least likely place you could have revival? I know what they would have said. You can't have revival in Jerusalem. That's where they crucified the savior. That's an antagonistic atmosphere and environment. You can't have revival in Jerusalem. Tell them that on the day of Pentecost when 3000 souls were saved in one day. If they can have a revival in an antagonistic environment like that and 3000 and souls get saved in one day. We got hope tonight. Amen. But one that's the most encouraging to me is the revival that Ezekiel had in Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of God was on Ezekiel and set him smack dab in the middle of this massive cathedral and told him to preach this large crowd. Well, the only problem was the cathedral was a desert. And the large crowd was a bunch of dried up, scattered out bones. Now I've preached to a lot of backs of eyelids. Far as I know, I never preached to anybody who didn't have any eyelids. I've seen a lot of eyes closed. I've seen heads tilted back. I've seen mouth and jaws drop open. 
sometimes even drool coming out the side. They checked out on me. But I ain't never seen any like the likes of Ezekiel's crowd. What kind of inspiration would it take to preach to a bunch of dried up, scattered bones? And I love the test that the Lord gives to Ezekiel in verse three. He said, son of man, can these bones live? Now there's two answers. There's the political answer that the diplomatic answer that Ezekiel says out loud, but there's the answer that remains unspoken that went something like this. Ain't no way in the world this bunch is living, but he ain't going to tell the Lord that. So in a diplomatic approach, he just says, Oh Lord, thou knowest. The Lord ain't going to let him by with that. So he's just going to put him to the test. Well, preach to him then, boy. So he's looking over this crowd. What do you use for your text? But the Lord told him what to say. Here's his text. Oh, ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Verse number seven. There was a whole lot of shaking going on. I thought, wow, that was some kind of message. I know what some of you are thinking. That was a short message too, Brother George. I'll make you a deal. I'll preach that short if you respond that fast. <laughs> Could we get a whole lot of shaking going on? Here's, here's where it gets long-winded though, Brother Cal. In verse number nine, I mean, it, it, the moment in verse seven, there's a whole lot of shaking going on. It said, bone came to his bone. I mean, this is amazing. If, if any of you ever watched CSI, you remember back when Grissom was the head of the CSI, this would have driven Grissom crazy. I mean, without any DNA evidence, without any Q-tip swab, checking for blood and all that stuff, it was like they didn't need CSI help. All these bones came to their bones and it wasn't like your bone connected to my bone. They connected to the right person. And the best way I can describe it, in this desert, deserted valley, it's like all these scattered bones. Anybody remember the Adams family? I was so envious of cousin it. Some of you get that on the way home. Not only was I envious of cousin it that had all the hair, but I was also envious of lurch. Anyway, but in addition to cousin it, there was thing. Thing was just a hand. Hand popped out when they got the mail. All the things relatives were on this desert floor. And when there was a whole lot of shaking going on, I can see these hands like related to thing and they're bouncing across there and they find the right wrist bone to get connected to. That's amazing to me. Bone came to bone, tendon, ligaments, tissue, muscle, skin. It all comes together, but there's one problem. They were still laying there lifeless. And he said, prophesy to the four winds. And the wind came and breathed into them the breath of life. And there rose up an exceeding great 
army. And I thought if Ezekiel can have a revival in a valley full of dead, dry bones, I'm looking at you all tonight and ain't none of you look as bad off as Ezekiel's crowd. I think there's hope for us to see that, amen? Is anything too hard for the Lord? There is no promise too hard for the Lord to fulfill. There is no problem too hard for the Lord to solve. There is no place too hard for the Lord to send revival. And that means in America, we could still have revival. You could have revival here. What county am I in? Scioto County. You could have revival in Scioto County. I was driving through Portsmouth today. I had several hours between, I finished up a meeting in Ashland this morning, had several hours between there. I was driving through Portsmouth. That was a depressing ride. That was a depressing ride. Look at the sadness of humanity, of what alcoholism and drug addiction and the such like is doing there. I believe God wants to give revival to Portsmouth and Scioto County, New Boston and surrounding area. Amen. There's no place too hard for the Lord to send revival. Let me share one more with you. If you don't get any of the rest of these, get this one. Because this is why we do what we're doing. There is no person too hard for the Lord to save. No person too hard for the Lord to save. I'm glad for that. If you would have gone, if you would have gone into the town of Jericho and asked them, who would be the least likely person in Jericho to be interested in the person of Jesus Christ? I know what they would have said, that lying, cheating, thieving, stealing tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. All he's interested in is money and material things. But little did they know, money and material things had not satisfied the longing and the emptiness in his heart. He'd seen what Jesus had done for Matthew. He'd seen what Jesus had done for other tax collectors. And he must have been wondering, can Jesus do that for me? And the answer tonight is, yes, he can. And in Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus shimmies up that sycamore tree. He's peering through the branches and thinking, and he sees Jesus as he's coming. And Jesus speaks to that, that, that blind man at the entrance of Jericho, the one that Zacchaeus probably tried to avoid because all he wanted was a handout. And Jesus touched that blind man and Zacchaeus saw that blind man run through town. And he thought there must really be something to this Jesus fellow and he's peering on and in verse number five Jesus stopped under that tree looked through the branches and said Zacchaeus make haste come down out of there boy I'm coming to your house today and in verses nine and ten Jesus said this day is salvation come to this house for as much as he also is a son of Abraham for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost if he could save Zacchaeus, he could save you tonight. If you would have gone, if you would have gone into Samaria at, this, at a town called Sychar where Jacob's well was 
And if you would have asked the people of Sychar who would be the least likely to be interested in, in seeking eternal life and seeking spiritual things, they would have said, there's a woman that has a reputation. She's had five husbands. She's shacking up with another one. By the way, shacking up was wrong then. It's still wrong today. Amen. You know what I'm on that, since you brought that subject up, it used to be that shacking up was a sin of young couples, but shacking up's a sin of senior citizens now because we got to the place they think more of their money than they do their morals. Don't get too quiet. And here's what the sad part of it is. Those, those couples shacking up out of wedlock will go to song fest, but they won't come to revival to hear the word of God preached. Don't get too quiet, I'll think you're guilty. <laughs> Jesus offered her living water, thank God. If you would have asked, if George Barna and George Gallup would have been around in the first century doing their posters, their postering, polling, if they would have been around then, and they probably would have got a 100% poll on this, who would be the least likely person to be ever convert to Christianity? They would have said Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. He's persecuting the church. In fact, he's on the road to Damascus with letters in his hand to arrest other Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. And there in Acts chapter nine, verses one through six, on the road to Damascus, the risen Savior literally knocked him off his high horse. If I'd have been the Lord, I'd have had that horse stomping. But there, there, Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle. If God can change him, if God can save him, there's hope for you tonight if you're here unsaved. There's no person too hard for the Lord to save. The devil's lying to you. If you think you've done too much, gone too far, your life is too much of a mess and too much of a wreck, the devil's lying to you if he's telling you you can't be saved. The scripture tells me and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He's able, thank God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? We got three convinced, let's try that again. Is anything too hard for the Lord? There is no promise too hard for the Lord to fulfill. There's no problem too hard for the Lord to solve. There's no place too hard for the Lord to send revival. And thank God, there's no person too hard for him to save. Amen. 